Welcome back to the AWB COVID-19 Employer Resources Webinar Series, presented by Primera Blue Cross. Today, AWB President Chris Johnson gets the latest on the pandemic's impact on trade and the global supply chain, with input from Lori Troutman, Director of the Border Policy Research Institute at Western Washington University, Lee Gibbs, Seattle Regional Export Finance Manager at the U.S. Small Business Administration, Zach Merrill, Sales Account Manager at the Port of Vancouver, and Hart Hodges and James McCafferty, co-directors of the Center for Economic and Business Research at Western Washington University. Good morning, and welcome back to AWB's weekly webinar series. I'm Chris Johnson, President and CEO of the Association of Washington Business. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us this morning. Uh, like every week, we have another great lineup of speakers today to discuss an important topic as we go through the COVID-19 epidemic here. Today's topic is around trade. And that's exactly what our speakers are going to be talking about today. By way of reminder, Washington State is the most trade-driven state of the 50 states. And so trade is prevalent in every county, across all types of industries, exporting products and goods and services across the globe. And we have a fantastic lineup of speakers to address that today. I want to remind you and remind those that are listening in this morning, if you've not had a chance to go to the new AWB portal at rebound, the word and recovery.org, Again, rebound, the word and, recovery.org. It's a fascinating portal to help you do two important things. One is a toolkit to help small businesses go through the process as we go into phases two and three and four about how do you reopen, What uh, a toolkit to train employees that are in there, uh, social media and distancing tiles, communication programs that are in there, stickers that go on the floor for social distancing and all. You'll find a robust toolkit that is there. Equally important is a PPE portal that's in there, and it gives you the ability to source important PPE locally, made in Washington PPE by Washington, uh, by, by Washingtonians for Washingtonians. A really great portal. 8,000 of you have already gone through the portal, or I should say through the website, and with 2,000 requests as of yesterday for PPE that have taken place in this important tool. So again, if you're not had a chance to spend some time here, please do so. There is some great information in here. And this comes to you on behalf of the AWB Rebound and Recovery Task Force, led by Michelle Hagee and Tim Schauer. With that, let me also say thank you to Primera Blue Cross uh, for sponsoring this week's webinar series. Primera is in your corner, just like trade is. Trade is in every corner of the state of Washington. And without their support, we certainly couldn't make this possible here today. We're clearly in an unprecedented disruption of the global economy, uh, and world trade has been falling. It's estimated to fall anywhere between 13 and 32 percent uh, in 2020. So we have an outstanding group of people together today to talk about what is the status of trade today, what are some of the policy options as we go forward, and maybe give us a little glimmer of look into what do we think might happen in 2021 as it relates to trade. We're joined by the following speakers this morning, Lori Troutman, Director of Border Policy at Western Washington University, Lee Gibbs, he's the Seattle Regional Export Finance uh, Manager for the uh, SBA, Zach Merrill, Sales Account Manager at Port of Vancouver, USA, and Hart Hodges and James McCafferty from the Center for Economic Business Research, also at Western Washington University. Just by way of reminder, as we do every week, you have an opportunity to help set the dialogue and discussion by going to the right-hand corner of your screen and inserting your question in the GoToBox uh, platform there. Simply let us know who the question's for and insert your question there. Again, great way to do that. We already have a couple questions I see on the screen in front of me coming in. So again, please don't wait to get in the queue and ask your question. And if you've heard something really amazing from here, or you wanted to share something really important from today's webinar with friends or family, this will be rebroadcast on the AWB Facebook page tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Simply just like the page, and that is your opportunity uh, to see this tomorrow morning again. Without further ado, I'm going to go right to our first speaker today. It's Dr. Lori Troutman. She's, as I mentioned, the Director of Border Policy Research Institute at Western Washington University. Uh, by way of reminder for those that are listening in, our two most important trade partners uh, are Canada and Mexico, and Dr. Troutman engages in a range of research activities focused on the U.S.-Canada border, and particularly Washington and the British Columbia region. Her topics include trade, transportation, security, and human mobility. 
And Dr. Troutman also participates in working groups that are actively engaged in the U.S.-Canada relationship. So without further ado, Dr. Troutman, welcome on in to our front porch today to our important conversation about trade. I'll turn it over to you. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, some of my thunder was already stolen about those trade stats between Washington State and Canada, but I'm really here today just to talk very briefly about the border restrictions that were put in place between the U.S. and Canada. And I'll start out by saying that um, those border restrictions were put in place on March 21st bilaterally. So they were agreed upon by the U.S. and Canada before they were put in place. And they are limits on all non-essential travel between the U.S. and Canada at land, marine, and rail ports of entry. And non-essential, the categories are a little bit different depending on if you're going into Canada or coming into the United States. But basically, um, there's some work um, and some specific categories that are allowed to cross, but they're very limited. Now, in terms of trade, which I actually won't speak about much today because cargo has remained unrestricted with these border restrictions. Uh, the flow of cargo has dipped a little bit, and I can get into those numbers later but cargo is moving back and forth as, as it normally does. Now, right before I joined this call, I looked at my email and there was an email from Reuters saying that the extensions are likely to be extended through July. Now, that hasn't been confirmed yet, but it looks, it's, it looks likely that, that those will be in place. So we're looking at at least four months of unprecedented restrictions on movement and travel between the U.S. and Canada. So one important thing to note in, is that the U.S. and Canada are comprised of three main regions, and those regions function very differently in terms of who is crossing, what goods are moving back and forth, and what those economic relationships that tie those regions together are. And I bring that up because the impacts of those border restrictions that we have today are going to affect these regions in different ways. And despite that, you know, we have this one-size-fits-all approach to managing the border, but we're going to be recovering differently in these different regions. So in our region, which I think of as the westernmost part of British Columbia and Washington state, where we have the second busier, busiest passenger crossing between the US and Canada and the fourth busiest commercial crossing, we see about 6 million cars enter Washington state from Canada every year and about 600,000 trucks. And we have about a $20 billion bilateral trade relationship between Washington state and Canada. And as was mentioned, Washington state is the most trade dependent state in the US. Uh, we have a trade surplus, which is very unique and Canada factors very, very highly in that trade relationship. So a couple unique points about the movement of people specifically, or basically our cross-border region. Here in BC and Washington, we have a very high percentage of Canadians that are moving back and forth. About 75 to 80% of the people crossing our borders are Canadian and about three quarters of them are engaged in discretionary travel. So that's shopping, um, whether that's retail or purchasing gas or leisure and vacation. And because of that, those flows are very sensitive to fluctuations in exchange rates. So we have kind of um, good oscillations in the number of people that are crossing at any given point. And that's very different from a place like Detroit Windsor, for example, where you have actually a fairly high percentage of people that are crossing for work and those people are continuing to cross now because they're considered essential employees in essential industries. So I have one slide, if we could pull that up, I'll just walk you through that very quickly, which um, is basically a timeline of the border restrictions and the impacts we saw in BC and Washington. So that um, gray bar graph is the number of cars entering Washington state in those westernmost ports. And the blue dotted line is the number of confirmed COVID cases in Washington. And the red dotted line is the number of confirmed COVID cases in BC. And the first thing that stands out is there's a huge discrepancy between the two. BC numbers are much lower than Washington state. But we saw um, volumes of people entering Washington remain pretty consistent with previous years up until about February 29th. And that's when we had the first death from COVID-19 in Washington state. And I think at the time it was believed to be the first death in the United States. Um, then just a couple weeks later, we had the World Health Organization announced that um, COVID-19 was a global pandemic. And then over the next couple of weeks, both BC and Washington, but especially BC put in some limits on essential travel, um, a mandatory or voluntary quarantine that then became mandatory 
And we saw the numbers really, really drop in terms of who was the number of people crossing the border. And it wasn't until March 21st that those border restrictions went in place. But as you can see, uh, cross-border travel had pretty much come to a halt before those restrictions were even put in place. Now, I only have the numbers through April, and I haven't updated them because they've remained the same. They haven't actually changed really at all. Um, typically, we see about uh, 11,000 cars entering Washington State during this time period every day. We're now seeing about 200. And as I previously mentioned, uh, cargo is unrestricted, but in, by about mid-April, cargo had dipped down about 25%, but we've since seen the number of trucks increasing, and we're now at about 88% of normal. So the general consensus is that the border restrictions have worked quite well from a trade perspective, and really those declines in trade have been due to um, demand, declines in demand, but also supply chain disruptions. And certainly Washington State and Canada have a very close integrated supply chain networks in particular industries, um, oil refinery being one of those, and those have just you know, ceased to really be moving back and forth. So you can cut the slide if you'd like, and I'll just move to the, some of the takeaways from what we've seen in this region. I think um, provincial and state efforts combined with overall public health concerns by travelers had really impacted cross-border flows well before the border restrictions were put in place. And as we see from the both the state and provincial restrictions or um, you know, certain phases of economic shutdown, the role of the state and the province in this pandemic, both going into the crisis but also recovering from it is really, really important. And this is pretty unique because we are talking about sort of an international jurisdiction, but we have the state and the province playing a key role. And public health concerns have, and will likely continue to have, a really large impact on people's cross-border behavior, regardless of those border restrictions. That's my opinion, uh, based on what we've seen happening leading up to the restrictions. So my final point is just to sort of raise the question of what does this mean for our economic recovery? And this is a really difficult question to answer right now, because we can't yet disentangle the economic impacts in Washington state from the overall shutdown um, compared to the border restrictions. Certainly we know that tourism and retail will be hit disproportionately hard in areas and in particular sectors that rely on Canadian visitors. Because if the restrictions are extended through July, which I think they will be, you know, that pretty much cuts out the entire summer tourism um, industry for the most part. Now, one question that I've been grappling with is whether or not we will see long-term or medium-term shifts in both consumer and investment behavior, similar to what we saw post 9-11, where the border sort of became this dull zone and, um, and activity remained low for a long time. And I will say that I think our policy responses can play a very large role in what that recovery looks like. So finally, I'll just wrap up by saying that I think it's really critical that we better understand, engage, and promote our cross-border ties with Canada because those do undergird a lot of our resiliency, whether it's trade or it's tourism. Up in Whatcom County, where I live and work, we're, um, we're really recognizing that the border restrictions are, are drawing more attention to, to the importance of Canadians in our economy and also the importance of being a little bit more strategic in those relationships moving forward. And I think our region is really well positioned to rebound from these border restrictions and from these economic um, slowdowns on both sides of the border because we have been really innovative in our border policy solutions. Uh, for those of you who are, remember the enhanced driver's license, that came out of a collaboration between BC and Washington State, and it really helped to expedite the movement of people back and forth across the border. And we also have some very strong cross-border institutions that support those relationships from an economic and trade perspective. One that I'm very much involved in is the Cascadia Innovation Corridor, which brings together public-private sector entities on both sides of the border. So I do think we can be creative, we can be innovative and we can rebound from these restrictions and these shutdowns, but we'll have to continue to communicate across the border, which right now is quite challenging. So thanks very much. Thank you, Dr. Troutman. I, I, we've got a quick question for you here. and Let me kind of tee it up. You talked about the differences of border uh, between Michigan and Canada and, and what we experienced here. Uh, I wonder if you maybe could look into how disruptive has this been on supply chain 
both, uh, both from a U.S. perspective and a Canada perspective about with the borders being so tightly controlled as they are, how has the movement of goods and services that are part of the, the needed supply chain been interrupted in your mind? Yeah, I, I do think the supply chain interruptions have been less about the border restrictions and more about other issues. Uh, one example would be the automobile sector, which again, Detroit Windsor is a great example of that. We have plants on both sides of the border, but they're not necessarily opening up at the same time and in the same way. So that makes that supply chain coordination really difficult and really challenging. But again, that's really state and provincial guidelines more than it is that federal border. Thank you, Lori. I've, I've got a number of more questions, but I need to move on. You'll be back for the lightning round, so don't go far. Uh, we'll be back to you. So thank you very much for joining us. Up next, our next speaker is Lee Gibbs. Uh, Lee is the Export Finance Manager for the U.S. Small Business Administration. Lee has over 40 years of experience in agriculture, commercial, and SBA lending, works both with banks and small business leaders, helping them to understand and use the Government Guaranteed Loan Program. Uh, the Export-Import Bank is a program that we've advocated really hard for. Uh, it's used by 200-plus companies throughout the state of Washington to help them either finance their their exports or, or have the insurance guarantee as they do business. So with that, let me turn it over to Lee. Lee, welcome into the AWB webinar series. Take it away. And I'm happy to be here. Um, I want to talk to these slides if I can uh, a little bit. I'm from the Office of International Trade, as has been mentioned. Uh, most of you, I think, are very familiar with a lot of the SBA programs that have been presented at this time. I have to tell you, over my 40 years of experience, I've never seen opportunities, I've never seen situations like this before in my career. Uh, and uh, these extreme situations require, or extreme circumstances require extreme responses. Uh, with that, we had the Paycheck Protection Program, which I think many of you are very familiar with. That Paycheck Protection Program still has lots of dollars left in it. Uh, it's open until the end of June here, June 30th. Uh, we're still, or the banks are still accepting applications through that period of time. And um, <clears throat> those funds seem to be growing. Uh, as people are turning money back, uh, some of the larger corporations that uh, really the program wasn't intended to uh, serve has uh, turned uh, millions of dollars back. And so there's still over a billion dollars available in that program for small businesses to reach out and capture. Uh, you applied for that program through your banks, as uh, you are probably already aware. Uh, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, on the other hand, um, has been closed currently. Uh, it was only available uh, here for agricultural firms now towards the end. However, even that has been closed for the time being until uh, the SBA and the Office of Disaster Assistance is able to catch up on processing those loans. That has been a very slow and tedious process. Uh, many of my colleagues in, in the uh, Office of International Trade have been uh, taken to the Office of Disaster Assistance to help with those programs. Uh, one of the programs that I think has not been well advertised and uh, was uh, very, uh, would be very useful is the SBA Express Bridge Loan. Uh, that bridge loan basically, you'd be able to go into a lender that did SBA Express loans and get a $25,000 loan quickly that would bridge you over until some of these other programs could uh, come into play. Uh, that program was not very well used. And then lastly is the SBA debt relief. Can we go to the next slide, please? Uh, so, how this debt relief program works is um, basically the SBA or the government is paying all the principal interest and monthly fees uh, on your SBA uh, guaranteed loans. So, if you have uh, a loan with your bank that has an SBA guarantee on it uh, for the next six months or for six months uh, of a period of time, we're paying all of the principal interest and fees. Um, also, that's uh, available on any new loans that are issued uh, prior to September 27th of this year. So even if you go in and get a new loan, 
from uh, an SBA guaranteed loan from your lender, uh, we're going to pick up the principal interest and fees uh, for six months on that loan. Next slide, please. Okay, overall, uh, the main purpose of the SBA is to help overcome those financing challenges that you uh, come in uh, contact with. So uh, I think the key thing to remember is unless it is a disaster assistance loan, we work primarily with your lender uh, and it's uh, the banks are uh, by far and away our best and first line of defense and putting out uh, these programs. And so uh, we, I mentioned was made of um, uh, XM Bank. Uh, XM provides uh, foreign buyer credit uh, risk insurance. Uh, that's non-payment insurance. And uh, if that for some reason or other is canceled or reduced, then we have programs that can help uh, overcome those challenges. Uh, if your operating lines have been uh, reduced or, or in some cases completely withdrawn, then uh, again, as the SBA, we can come in and work with your lender. Uh, the one that I see is uh, most frequently is the demand by foreign buyers, especially during this period of time for advanced payments or performance guarantees. And uh, as we'll get into here in a few minutes, a little bit later, uh, so we, we have programs to help um, uh, overcome uh, and uh, to uh, give you opportunity to provide those advanced payments and performance guarantees. Uh, we also deal with supply chain issues, uh, especially um, the original equipment manufacturer uh, issues, if there are extended terms or things like that that need to be made there. So any rate, uh, next slide. <laughs> Uh, again, we're here, especially internationally, to help keep you competitive. Uh, we try to do that in three ways, uh, with the intelligence uh, or the research that you have uh, in these challenging times. Uh, we do that uh, in cooperation and in conjunction with the university systems. Uh, we have grants to reach those international buyers, and we also have uh, financing for your international uh, supply chains uh, sales. Uh, if you are, uh, in order to remain competitive, needing to offer terms, then we're able to help you uh, do that. Next slide, please. Okay, um, we have what's called the white glove service. Uh, this is something new that we're trying here to uh, help small businesses and basically what it is, is just an opportunity to meet with myself and my colleagues on a one on one basis uh, to be able to get the information that you need to be able to uh, respond quickly to the challenges that you're finding. Uh, we can uh, give you introductions to a lot of the professional services. We're very fortunate here in the state of uh, Washington to have what's called the WIOT team. And that's the Washington Export Outreach Team. And it's basically a collaboration of all the local, state, and federal uh, entities that are in the business of helping uh, you as small businesses go internationally. Uh, and so we're able to get you to the right people and introduce you to those people that are going to be able to help you most uh, overcome the challenges that you have. Uh, the, on the screen here, it shows that uh, you can schedule that through an 800 number. Uh, however, my number will be at the end of the slide presentation. And uh, basically, myself and my colleague, uh, Jim Newton, down in the Portland, Oregon area, are those that are going to be helping you. So if you would like, uh, rather than go through the 800 number, just uh, give me a call and I can connect you. Uh, with our export finance managers uh, across the U.S. We also have uh, and, uh, a few folks on our team that uh, help to overcome uh, trade issues, whether they be um, well barriers of any kind. Uh, they're able to elevate that and uh, take that um, directly to the place they need to go there in Washington, D.C. So. 
Uh, Sarah Bonner is the person that helps us do that. And I can tell you, she has been a great help for a number of our Washington companies as we've come up against uh, various trade barriers. Next slide, please. Okay, grants to reach international buyers. I hope most of you are familiar with the state trade expansion program. Uh, Washington State is uh, very, very active. Uh, we receive uh, among the top grants, um, basically what the step grant uh, program is, is uh, SBA provides uh, a number, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 15 to $18 million that is then given out to the states uh, based on their use of the program. And Washington State uh, is among the top uh, in as far as the recipient of those funds. Uh, and we basically will receive uh, close to a million dollars uh, that we are then able to give out to you as small businesses. Uh, typically, those grants are going to run in the $2,500 to $3,000 range, and uh, they're there to help you to cover your expenses as you enter that uh, international marketplace. Uh, you can see a few of the covered expenses here on my slide. Next slide, please. Okay, financing your international supply chain. Uh, basically, we have three core loan programs that uh, we use to help promote international trade, the Export Express, Export Working Capital, and the International Trade Loan. Uh, the real workhorse out of that is the Export Working Capital line. It's a 90% guarantee that we give the lender, your lender, to work with you, and we can finance up to 100% of your costs to meet uh, a purchase order. So if, you're, if, if you've got a purchase order that uh, comes into you as a result of, of all of these issues that are going on globally, and it's just way out of your reach uh, because it's larger than any order you've ever processed before, we're able to come in with an export working capital program and help you um, to finance 100% of the cost. We, we're not able to finance any of the profit margin up front, but we can certainly help you uh, with the cost to meet that purchase order. I uh, personally like the Export Express. Um, that program can be used for uh, a myriad of uses, whether it's attending trade shows, uh, translating material for your marketing, uh, helping you with marketing, uh, just a, a lot of different things at that Export Express. The international trade loan, I think probably one of the biggest things that I've used this for over the years as a lender um, was to help restructure and, and refinance debt uh, to um, provide additional working capital, if you will, for expanding your international trade. And uh, this uh, program is a world workhorse. If you have equipment or modifications that you need to make to your uh, plant or equipment, uh, because we can finance that out over the useful life of the equipment rather than the five to seven years that banks typically like to uh, give as far as terms are concerned. Uh, if you're having troubles uh, or if your lender is not uh, familiar with these programs, please reach out to me. Uh, that's my primary responsibility as an old lender. Uh, I have, uh, I, I speak uh, the language, I guess, and I'm able to uh, help your lender to understand how to, to leverage these programs to your best advantage. Uh, all of these options are, are for direct and indirect exporter. And in closing, uh, I would like to say, uh, then, well, let's go to the next slide. Uh, again, this is some of the terms that we talked about. Um, the bid bonds and advance payment guarantees, we've already sp spoken about that. But I think the thing that I wanted to, to uh, as I close my presentation here, is I would like people to understand that uh, we, we can enter that international market indirectly easier than we can enter that market directly. And so as an indirect exporter, if you're selling to someone, say Boeing, 
who then sells their product internationally, that makes you an indirect exporter and available for the use of all of these programs. Thank you very much. And I look forward to answering any questions that should there be any later on. Thank you, Lee. That was, that was some great information. Unfortunately, we're running over, but the one question I would want to make sure that we get asked, because it's coming in a number of times today, is there is still money left in the PPP program. So if you're somebody listening in who hasn't accessed that, there is still both time available and dollars available to access that, correct? Yes, that's correct. And uh, you can apply until the end of the month. And under the new program, you have five years to repay it back if it's not forgiven. Great. M many thanks, Lee. That, that was excellent. Appreciate your leadership. Appreciate SBA support. It's a historic time, as you mentioned, unprecedented amount of options that are available to assist small businesses as we go through this pandemic. Up next, we have Zach Merrill. Zach is the sales account manager at Port of Vancouver, USA, and prior to his current role, served as the port's market research analyst with a primary focus on maritime cargo. And we heard Dr. Troutman earlier talk about cargo. So Zach, I think you've got an opportunity to share a little bit with us on that regard. Uh, Zach has a bachelor's degree in history from Purdue University and a master's in international commerce from Valpo. So if you're a basketball junkie, home to Coach Drew, who took him into the deep into the NCAA tournament a number of years ago. So with that, Zach, <laughs> let me turn it over to you. Welcome you to the program. Awesome. Thank you, and uh, good morning, everybody. I appreciate having the opportunity to talk this morning. And, uh, you know, the first thing I'd like to say is that all ports uh, are unique. Uh, the Port of Vancouver is certainly unique. Uh, even from other ports in Washington, we all handle different cargoes, and all the ports have been, you know, impacted differently by this economic shutdown because all those cargoes have been impacted differently and the demand for those cargoes has been impacted differently. So the major cargo groups that we handle in Vancouver are, um, the first one is import, uh, break bulk or project cargoes. Those are things that are too big to uh, put in shipping containers. Uh, they're handled by the piece typically. They're things like steel slabs. Um, steel slab can weigh up to 60,000 pounds, uh, which is, I don't know, maybe 20, 20 Subaru and Prezas. Uh, we also handle uh, windmill components, so those wind turbines you see when you're, uh, you know, driving through the gorge or somewhere else, you know, it's, there's a very good likelihood that some of those blades or tower components that were handled, uh, you know, through a, through a port were handled at the Port of Vancouver. And we also handle some other oversized industrial equipment like uh, transformers and things. These are also really heavy components that, that just can't be put in shipping containers and need to be handled by um, specific heavy lift, heavy lift cranes. Some of the other cargo that we handle uh, are, you know, the, the, the export dry bulk, uh, and liquid bulk cargo, they flow uh, directly over conveyors typically or through pipelines. Examples of these are agricultural products, you know, like wheat, corn, soybeans, uh, mineral ores. Uh, one of them that we handle at the port is copper concentrate. I'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, we also handle some industrial chemicals and we also handle and export steel scrap. Um, and now the third, uh, the third cargo group I'd like to kind of mention, and it's something that was mentioned by Dr. Troutman as well, are automobiles. We're an automobile import gateway. Our primary customer is Subaru, and those vehicles come from Japan. Now, what makes those vehicles unique to the rest of the cargo that we handle is that um, those are discretionary purchases. Uh, and, and unlike, you know, some of the other ports in Washington that handle containers, um, a lot of those uh, a lot of that cargo that's in those containers is discretionary consumer products. So uh, when you talk about impacts to ports, um, you know whether an item is a is an industrial product or a consumer product, I think the experiences have been have been vastly different. So I'll kind of touch on the three major challenges that the Port of Vancouver had since these shutdown policies kicked off on March 13th. You know the first one has has been the operational inefficiencies introduced by the new work requirements and restrictions. You know, there's social distancing, um, our, our unionized labor force, the, the dock workers, the equipment operators. Um, they are uh, there's some there's some work restrictions there that have become a challenge for us, and they're just we're just not as efficient as we were before this before this uh, COVID issue. There's been supply chain disruptions, big supply chain disruptions, and I'll touch a little bit on on that earlier. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a little, a little bit here, and then 
you know, for the port itself, there's a there's a financial risk associated with a potential lack of cargo demand because as, as cargo comes through the port, that's how we earn our revenue. Um, so very early on, uh, the port suspended several capital projects um, to to really reduce spending. This was early on when when things were extremely volatile. And we had no idea really what to expect, how long the shutdown was going to be. Um, so we acted very quickly to, to reduce spending. So let me just talk about uh, some of the three three major cargos that I'd like to touch on that kind of have different stories. Um, automobiles are probably the one cargo that the Port of Vancouver handles that is that kind of direct consumer discretionary cargo that, that I'd mentioned. Um, you know, kind of phase one of what happened with vehicles was there was this initial supply chain disruption dealerships in the united states were closing um, factories in japan were still producing vehicles they still had ships booked and so the vehicles were coming um, now the problem is is that the vehicles weren't leaving the port so it, right away when this started we started to field calls um, from vehicle manufacturers saying hey we need we need more space in case we run out of space on our marine terminals to store these vehicles because our dealers aren't taking them. And so since we've kind of, you know, dealt with that initial uh, crunch on the supply chain, um, you know, since then we've had all this inventory stockpile um, and dealerships are starting to take them a little bit uh, as, as things start to open back up. But now there's this kind of, in, this inventory stockpile needs to be drawn down before more cars really come into the country and so we went from about four vessels a month carrying maybe 1,700 autos per vessel um, to no vessel activity in the past four weeks and, and possibly no vessel activity uh, through the end of July. So that's automobiles. Um, the next you know, product I'd like to talk about is, is copper. Uh, copper is a really fascinating cargo. I love reading and, and, and talking about copper. Uh, it's an industrial material. Um, you know, there is a long-term and steady demand and a need for copper. It's a great bellwether product um, for the economy. It's used in construction activity. It's used in electronics. It's, it's, all, it's used in vehicle production, particularly more so even in electric vehicles as those become more popular. And the good news is, is that the export of, of copper has been fairly steady. Uh, so uh, the, the reopening of China has certainly helped that. Uh, China, as a country per year, consumes about 50% of the global copper production. So when, when China's economy is, is rolling, um, in this country exports more copper. And the third thing I'd like to talk about are, are kind of those more project-driven um, cargos. Windmill components is a perfect example. Those are things that have long lead times. There's years of planning that go into the execution of those projects. And, you know, in this case, the Port of Vancouver is extremely lucky because it just so happens that Government subsidies, it's called the production tax credit for renewable uh, projects like windmill uh, farms, uh, are, are, are beginning to expire. They're going to expire next year. So in order to realize the benefits of those government subsidies, you have to execute these projects. So for many, many years, we've known that we were going to be getting a lot of windmill projects, a lot of windmill components in 2020, 2021. And so... In that regard, uh, this has been a record year for Vancouver in, in handling those, and it, it just so happens to have fallen during this time when when some of our other cargos are not doing quite as well. So, one, one problem that causes is that there's been quite a bit of congestion. There is a lot of labor that goes into handling those wind components. They can be as long as 75 meters, or some of the longest blades. They're they're just huge. So, that somewhat uh, exasperates that that operational capacity and efficiency that efficiency that I talked about about earlier and um, with that I'll, I'll turn it back and uh, if there's any questions I'm, I'm happy to answer those. Uh, thanks Zach for joining us. Let, let me maybe ask you to look ahead. You know I, I led off our webinar today talking about our rebound and recovery piece. No doubt trade is going to play an important role as our Washington state economy goes through the recovery period here. How bullish or not are you about trade for our economy in 2021 as you look ahead? Yeah, that that that's a tough question to answer. Um, you know, 
copper is one thing that gives me some hope because those producers are they're not slowing down production no no copper mines were shut down as a result of coronavirus so they continue to produce and we continue to ship copper there continues to be a demand in the world economy for a product that is very closely tied to economic activity which is i think is a is a is a good sign you know you don't initially you don't just shut off the taps on on copper production um like you can with a consumer product where you know if if, if people aren't out in the stores buying those things and the demand pretty much goes away uh right away it's just not the not the case with copper so some good some good signs in the copper market for the economy i think Thank you, Zach. Uh, ports are going to play an important role as we think about recovery and go forward on our economy. So thank you for joining us. Stay for the lightning round, if, if you would. And on to our final set of speakers, actually. We've got two of them here. It's Dr. Hart Hodges and James McCafferty. They're the co-directors of the Center for Economic Business Research at Western Washington University. Hart, James, welcome on in. I'll let you take it away. Thanks for having us. Uh... And we'll let you call up the, the slides that we're going to be using. Um, and actually, in the interest of time, you can just jump through the jump right past that intro slide and, and into this one. Uh, we're not going to talk about trade so much as just sketching uh, current economic conditions and a little bit of an outlook. Um, trying to tie the last talk into this one, I mean, uh, mentioned copper. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about winners and losers. Uh, coming coming through the uh, pandemic and the and the economy, some on the technology side are certainly on the on the winners, and you start thinking 5G, copper, etc. Uh, but first, unemployment. Um, this slide um, would show uh, unemployment claims back for several years, except the scale doesn't allow it. Uh, you just see this massive jump up, uh, March April. And uh, we all have heard about the, the surprising uh, drop uh, in May, uh, biggest data shock for economists uh, and, and, and other weather, weathermen making forecasts. Uh, it's always hard to count, though. People uh, say they're employed, but they're at home. They're not working. How, do you count those as employed or not if they're temporary? All sorts of questions. What if you go back to work but only part-time, et cetera, et cetera? So uh, unemployment. One report last week said uh, now down to 13%. Most of the revised data suggests 16% uh, and, and climbing. We're going to have lingering unemployment for a while, and we'll we'll talk about that with our forecast. So uh, next slide, please. So let's get right to the the bottom line of all this. So in economic terms, it's bad, right? So we we only have a short amount of time. So we're going to to kind of simplify this down. We have high unemployment. We have consumer behaviors that are changing and changed. Um, with consumer behaviors, anytime you have consumers change the way they do something for more than about 60 days, those changes are more likely to become permanent. So uh, a lot of things people are doing now in their shopping and how they're behaving as consumers, there's going to be a residual effect to that. Supply chains are struggling. Overnight, we went from a bulk of things being directed towards the wholesale channel to almost all of it going into the direct-to-consumer uh, channel. So we've seen that all firsthand and experienced that. The reality is it's going to get better. Um, the real question is about when, right? So this is a disaster-based recession. It's not financial. Financial recessions are the ones we're used to seeing, you know, 2008, Great Depression, right? We've all seen the headlines. Um, this is a disaster-based. So this is more like Hurricane Katrina or flooding um, somewhere or forest fires in eastern Washington. The recovery is much faster. So then we talk about the shapes, right? Is it a V, which is what we normally see from localized disaster-based? Is it more of a U, which which might be more of what we're looking at? And we, we, we jokingly say it's more like a toddler-drawn U, nice, good downstroke, but that, that upstroke gets a little more elongated than we'd like to see. We'd like to not talk about Ws. Um, my Nike swoosh is out of the way. Some of those people um, are talking about how it's a, more of a, a, a swoosh kind of recovery um hearkening a little worse to i guess to a toddler you um we're going to avoid the w we hope um but there's going to be some structural changes as i talked about you know consumers and businesses are going to change their behaviors there's going to be some structural changes but we don't expect massive changes that way 
So major factors that we're watching, testing and tracing, you know, how effective can testing and tracing be? Because the more we are reliant on testing and tracing and the more we think that that's reliable, the more likely we are all to go out and do things. Uh, I saw this morning that we've gone now from 60% of Americans in general that don't want to go out. We're down now into around the high 40s for people that are wanting to go out and see their, their family and friends. We're still staying pretty high for some other things uh, like dining out and those kind of things. Those numbers are still staying fairly high for that. But testing and tracing are a big component to that. Development of vaccine, of course, is um, in the news every day, and, and that's going to be another big, big, uh, big push for that. And then, of course, all of this can be impacted by a rush to reopen. And so if we rush to reopen too quickly, we can have we can force ourselves into a W, we can force ourselves into a swoosh um, instead of that U-shaped. Next slide. Well, and, and James, as we talk about the shape of the recovery, I think we, we're gonna come back to a couple of uh, ideas, um, not necessarily the same shape for everybody. You know, some portion of the population is gonna say, I'm nervous, I'm not, I'm not ready to get on a plane. Other people are saying, whatever. Um, also on the business side, right? We've got some businesses. Uh, we've just uh, tagged Netflix here as, as uh, uh, almost no impact, and and as the, as the line suggests, uh, receiving a benefit. Uh, so it's an economic boost from from all of this, and you can uh, you can identify a number of companies in that category. Uh, others, uh, an initial shock, but really quick recovery back up to where they were. Uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, some of the you know, fit in that category. And uh, we're just picking on Caribbean cruise lines for fun here, uh, not really a forecast, but a, a number of industries uh, that are going to take quite a bit of time to come back. And one thing, when we talk about a V or a swoosh, um, the Economist magazine had a great headline called uh, the 90% economy. Because if some portion of the jobs don't come back in the near term or some portion of the spending doesn't come back, we're not talking about the whole economy bouncing back. We're talking about uh, some time. Uh, and James mentioned structural changes, uh, business travel. How many how many businesses are going to think, wow, this actually worked pretty well. Uh, half of these meetings can be done remotely. I don't have to fly somebody across the country. Uh, that impacts hotel travel, etc. So we'll a uh, lot of uncertainty here, and we're going to jump to the next slide. So other kind of shapes that we've been, again, have been pulled out of the news that we think are interesting. Um, you look at Apple Maps, and, and again, this is, is uh, now several weeks old, but you can see how the public demand shift towards how people are looking at maps. We can look at TSA, and we've all seen the photos probably from people that have traveled. The airports have very few people in them. Airlines are parking their jets. Um, and this is why there's just the demand has come down considerably. And of course, this is going to continue. Um, I saw Alaska Airlines yesterday released a video on all the things they're doing to protect people, trying to increase the number of people coming in. And those kind of things will help. Next slide. And that, rip, that ripples through the region when you think about plane orders for Boeing or another cancellation for the 737 MAX. So. Exactly. Um, hotel occupancy, probably not a shock there. The shocker, I think, for most people is that it's as high as it is. Um, hotels, of course, have a lot of different things more than just tourism involved in them. So um, that doesn't, it's not, shouldn't be shocking. And restaurants, of course, is exactly what you probably would have surmised it to be. When we look at table reservations for restaurants, it's, it's quite small because most restaurants haven't been able to have people in their facilities. They've been doing pickup and, and uh, delivery. Next slide. Okay, so where does Seattle fall in all of this? Um, we're going to talk about location. Uh, and a little bit about industry sector. So this slide is a little bit, it's, it's now a couple of weeks old as well. We apologize, but um, it's, it starts on the top left and then sort of swings from the bottom up on, on the right. Uh, the numbers show uh, expected job loss in Q2. Uh, and then the, the gray, excuse me, the yellow bars, and, and as you can see at the bottom, the percentages. So Las Vegas. Uh, 225,000 jobs expected to, to, to go away. Uh, it's well over 20% uh, of, of the total jobs there. And then you, you, can, you can see we, we've come down. So Seattle is, is not even in the top half of this major metro list. Uh, still a, a good number of jobs, but, but closer to 15%, 14, 15%. Uh, so one right, let's talk about distribution of the types of jobs. Are these all jobs or are these more centered in certain areas? Well, the, the numbers are for uh, sort of the covered, covered non-farm type jobs, but 
part of the reason you're seeing these differences is Seattle has uh, Microsoft, Amazon, et cetera, that aren't getting hit as much. Yes, we have Boeing and some others, but you, you see the, the relative strength in Seattle compared to uh, Orlando with a lot of food service accommodation, arts and entertainment uh, gathering type jobs. So you can talk about this from an industry mix uh, or location. Those are really two sides of the same coin. So next slide. Uh, this gives way to sort of a, a, our uh, what we're using here is the blue chip uh, consensus forecast and the numbers uh, are annualized. That's important. No one is expecting the economy to drop 35-40% uh, in Q2 alone. Uh, you should be thinking about an 8-9% to drop that quarter. So if that happened all four quarters of the year and you looked at it on an annualized rate, you'd get the 37%. Uh, so small drop in Q1 all happening in March. Uh, very ugly Q2, and then we start to see the recovery. And one thing to keep in mind is that you go down 10%. If you go back up 10%, you're not where you started, uh, just the way percentages are calculated. So an 11% bump up in Q3 and an 8 or 9% bump up in Q4 still doesn't get us all the way back. We're, we're looking at, at GDP uh, not getting back to the sort of the pre-recession levels uh, until well into 2021, uh, some people are saying early 2022. Um, unemployment is going to linger even longer. Uh, lots of questions about uh, about whether all of this debt is going to trigger inflation. Uh, most uh, of uh, most economists, uh, I'm certainly in this camp. Uh, the the demand shock that followed James's uh, hurricane flood or or whatever that followed this external shock. Um, puts significant downward pressure on, on prices. Uh, what's going to be interesting is to see who has pricing power coming out of this to pay workers more, uh, to pay more in health benefits, et cetera. So downward pressure on prices in the very near term, slow climb back, uh, maybe some inflationary pressures longer term due to the debt. So next slide. So we published the Puget Sound Economic Forecaster, and if that's something you're not familiar with, that's what it's worth taking a look at. But as we looked at our uh, most recent forecast, which is going to be published here on Friday, so you're getting a little bit of a sneak peek, um, you're going to see in 2020, we've got, um, we're calling for a, a very uh, mixed bag here. We've got definitely employment, personal income, housing permits. We're seeing those drop. Population will continue to increase. We've been a pretty steady on population increase. And when we uh, look at Puget Sound here, we're talking about Pierce, King, Snohomish, and Kitsap counties. Um, and then you can see the, the how that works shakes out in comparison to what the, the blue chip is telling us for the, for the national. So we're, we always look a little different than the national just because our mix looks different than the national averages. So that's that's how that's, that's shaking out. So next slide. So the, the real question is for us is can we actually manage this? So this is a photo from Missouri and uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. So we've actually seen some test results starting to come in where they're seeing uh, increases in uh, case rates. So can we manage having this U-shaped recovery versus a W-shaped recovery? And that's the, the piece for us that is um, forefront in our minds as we watch how different communities are handling opening and how things are happening around not only our state, um, but also around the country. Next slide. So, in general, yes, right, we're doing doing fairly well in most places, which is good. Although headlines here, 14 states had highest seven-day average of new coronavirus infections. We we know we have a large uptick uh, in Yakima, for example, in our own state. There's a number of counties uh, that have seen increases, uh, while some some counties are are staying low and other counties are starting to decrease. What's interesting is the is the again the distribution of things is very unequal. And so when we look at this chart here on the left, we can see the ages of people that our um, new cases are coming into. And you can see our our younger categories, which have been told at this point that it's low risk for them, it's it's it doesn't affect them as strongly. They're the ones that are actually more likely to be carrying the virus at this point which is problematic um, as we reopen uh, to that. And Next that, slide. That complicates, that complicates questions about school in the fall, which ripples through to the economy in a variety of ways. Well, last slide. So we, um, 
uh, are very active on social media. We post uh, about six or so articles every day that we're reading out of our research center that we think are interesting. We encourage you to follow us there. And then um, always we're, we're, we like phone calls, we like emails. So feel free to reach out to us with any economics questions you have. And of course, the Future Sound Economic Forecaster is, um, is a great resource as well. Thank you, Hart and James. That was excellent. Uh, I, I'm going to go with you for a question, then we're going to bring all the speakers up on the screen and do some lightning round. I'd be curious to get your perspective of less about in industries, but more about regions of the state. What do you, as you look ahead, how do you see the Spokane's, the Trace Cities, uh, the Vancouver's, the peninsula of the world coming back and rebounding as we go into recovery? Uh, you showed some really great data on Seattle and Central Puget Sound. I'm curious what you think about the other regions of the state. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting comments about urban rural. And what's been interesting is, is looking at some of what's happening within the virus itself because it's questioning some of that logic. We've, we're watching people relocate out of large cities. Uh, nationally, we're seeing data that shows this. And in Washington State, it, we've seen the same thing. People are locating out. You look at places like Kitsap County, uh, you look at Snohomish in North, you look at Pearson South. Uh, people are relocating out of those communities. Not that there's a net negative, there's still a net growth, right? King County's not losing people. Um, but we're seeing that spread more and more um, out into people that are able to remote work. And that's one of those, one of those uh, structural changes that we're actually watching. We saw a decline coming out of 2008 in remote working, and now that is being very much embraced. And most companies are finding it very um, workable for them. They're finding one company I spoke with said they were a couple of years ahead in their project work than when they worked in their offices. That's a substantial change, and they're an outlier, I'm sure of it, right? But even if companies were a month or two months ahead of where they might be by the remote working, they're gonna take a really strong look at that um, we've seen huge growth in Chelan-Douglas counties um, in our state, but particularly firefighters moving out of King County and living over there, um, ch chasing those lower co uh, cost of living. We have about a 60% cost of living differential in the state. And so if you're able to work remote, you're able to take advantage of that. And I, we think people will. And how remote, right? Because you're seeing people leave Seattle, but still within striking distance of uh, the job if they have to go in. Um, so we think the urban-rural split is going to continue. Uh, you're still, you, in addition to what James was talking about, you've got concentration with some of the large businesses, a uh, uh, few big winners, some smaller losers. So you've, that that dynamic is still going to be hard for some of the more rural parts of the state. We're going to bring everybody up. Lightning round means 30-second responses if we can here. And uh, Dr. Troutman, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, we have, we're going into July 1, which means USMCA goes into effect. Kind of give us some top-level thoughts of what you think that means to Washington State relative to our two biggest trading partners as a state, let alone a country, being in that USMCA pact. Um, there might be some bumps in the road as we figure this out. I actually think that it might be a good thing that it's happening now because on the Canadian border, there's a lot of excess capacity for customs officers to get used to this new, the new guidelines. Um, and I think, I guess overall, I'd say I think it's great for Washington State because it's something that's settled and it's something that's certain and it takes that uncertainty out of the relationship with two of our really important trading partners. Great. Uh, I have a lot of questions on the screen, so I'm going to try to go through them as fast as we can. We may run out of time today. Hey, Zach, the, the number one question coming in for you is what country are you most optimistic about as we go into the recovery phase of seeing a growth in Japan, is it China? What's the country you're most optimistic about relative to inbound trade? Yeah, I, you know, we are hoping that Subaru imports will uh, will rebound towards the end of the year. That's what we're hearing. We're, we're getting some whisperings from uh, those vessel carriers that, that they're booking ships. Um, so hopefully those discretionary, you know, cargoes like vehicles start to pick back up. Um, so that, that is something that, um, that I'm, I'm looking forward to happening uh, for sure. Lee, a quick question for you, and that is, is all of the funds from the EIDL program, have they been dispersed to, to applicants? So if you've applied for an EIDL grant, 
You received your routing number. Have those funds all been pushed out? Uh, no, but there's, uh, they've stopped accepting applications as they're working through them. They, they've only been able to get through about 25% of those applications at this point. It's a much slower process. There are still funds available, but I, I, we don't know how long those are going to last. They've reduced um, the amount of the loans that they're giving out. I think the maximum now is 150000 uh, where before it was advertised much greater than that. Uh, next, back to James and Hart. The, the question is, how bullish are you on the hospitality sector uh, to our state? We know that tourism is an important part of our economy, especially as James teed up the rural and, and rural communities. I think of Leavenworth and others that are really popular destinations for, for tourists and all to our state. How What's going to be the fragility of that industry? What type of growth should we expect to see in the next year? Kind of do some forecasting there, if you would. I, the data has shown us so far that people are looking at and uh, people are looking for places they can drive to. And so we're seeing an uptick in demand for where people can actually commute themselves and get into uh, by car. So overnight trips, no problem with going to hotels, but they're more likely to drive. So since you've got Leavenworth and, and places around the state, we've got good population center in, you know, in Core Puget Sound and in Spokane. People are going to be commuting into those more rural areas for vacations this summer, probably more so than we've seen in the past. The question is, will it offset uh, what's what would have gone in from other places, perhaps by air? And of course, the lack of cruise ships in Seattle is going to be is going to be problematic. And a competition between Airbnb. I mean, if I can if I can rent an apartment or a house and isolate uh, or distance versus a hotel, um, the onus is on the hotels to be really creative here and convincing. Uh, I think they can do it. Yeah, Dr. Troutman, back to you for a minute, if we can, thinking about trade and trade policy, and that's likely to be an active conversation as we think about recovery. We're nearing uh, the, you know, we're in a phase one deal with Japan, for example. If, if you were to think about trade policy and, and you were going to give some advice to our federal delegation about maybe next steps on trade, what would that be? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, you know, I think the elephant in the room is still China and going into this crisis, trade was looking a little shaky on the global front and we had the phase one deal with China and that looked really good. I mean, that's really important for Boeing, for other Washington state exports. And I think we need to come back and look at if that is even feasible now, because that's a really big ticket item for the U.S. and for Washington. And I honestly haven't followed the discussions on what's happening with that deal, but um, I, I would guess it's sort of fallen flat given that Chinese purchase commitments are not being made. So I think that's an important first step to, to figure out where we are with China. Hart, uh, next question for you is being asked, are you seeing the impact of international students not, or are you gonna see an impact as you go into the fall of international students not showing up and arriving on campus? For either concerns of COVID or because of trade trade or travel restrictions, I finally get an answer. I can say yes. We're we're, we're worried. Um, preliminary numbers are are down. Uh, not uh, they're down. Enrollment in at, uh, Washington schools, uh, higher ed, down for out of state students and uh, significantly down for international. Uh, and that that affects budgets. Um, and we, I mean, I can ramble on quite a bit, but that is an area of concern. Yes for all of the reasons you mentioned. So you're gonna appreciate this. This is a meaty conversation and I think it really reflects just how important trade is to our state. There's another 15 or so questions I could go. I have people telling me in my ear, we're over, we're over, we're over and we're gonna lose some of our speakers here. Uh, I would say this is a great conversation that we'll wanna pick back up with, with all of you along the way, whether it's the border policy issue, which is really important for the flow of goods and services to and from uh, both the U.S. to Canada and Mexico, uh, to the Port of Vancouver, uh, participated in our trade mission to Japan. We know how important so many of our products are to Asia, whether it be soft wheat, autos, technology, fruit, computers, airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you're probably going to be a, a leading indicator of how the recovery phase is going based upon what's coming into the ports. And certainly uh, at Western, the, the ability to analyze the fact that we have a 15 plus percent unemployment rate, a million people applied for unemployment benefits. We have a great degree of fragility. 
among different sectors of our economy and certainly different parts of our regions of our state's economy uh, struggling in this period of time. Recovery is going to take a while. And to James's comment about those great questions was, at the beginning, was this going to be a V-shaped recovery? Is it going to be a W-shaped recovery or, or a swoosh? I think we are all optimistic and hopeful that it's a swoosh uh, economy, uh, but we'll have to see. There's going to be a a lot of efforts gone into the, re the crisis period. We're going to have to double down in recovery to help restart and, and reboost uh, our economy as we go forward. So thank you all for joining us today. Some of you have done so while you're on vacation. So I really do appreciate you being with us today. Uh, this is an unprecedented global health crisis, no doubt about it. I would say there's four things as we leave today that we should be thinking about. Uh, buying local and giving confidence to the local economy is certainly helpful keeping supply chains flowing. Uh, we are a manufacturing and trade-driven state. That means we have an active supply chain that's really important to maintain as we go forward. We also need to think about it from a policy perspective of saying, how do we do everything to make it easier, not make it harder as we go forward uh, along the way. So again, thank you for joining us today. We had an outstanding lineup of speakers with us. I wanna thank Primera Blue Cross for being in our corner to help make this be possible to bring to you. We have an exciting program next week as we come back together a week from today. It'll be focused on employee health and well-being and the state of the healthcare industry. So again, a, a great panel coming to you next week. If you've not had a chance to nominate one of your favorite uh, businesses in your local community for the Washington Excellence Awards, we're now accepting those nominations. They are available on our website at AWB. By way of reminder, two last things before we wrap up today are rebound, the word and recovery.org portal is a fantastic resource for you to think about how you reopen, to think about all the tools that you might need to do so, including PPE. Uh, I think I announced earlier today the 2000th PPE transaction took place yesterday on that portal. So thank you for being with us. A reminder, if you want to share this program with others, it'll be done tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on our Facebook Live page. Thank you for being with us. A reminder, go to work. Go home. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Our next Employer Resources webinar is next Wednesday on June 17th with a look at the pandemic's impact on the healthcare industry. To register for this or any of our upcoming webinars, go to awb.org and click events. Mm -hmm.